0: Says chapter thirty-three, verse one, second chronicles. Manasseh was twelve years old when he became king, and he reigned fifty five years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So now what we've been seeing here through our time in the last couple weeks here in Second Chronicles, of course. As we've been seeing, just these different kings that are coming onto the scene. Good kings and bad kings. More bad kings than good kings. In the southern kingdom of Judah, there was only about eight good kings out of... Oh, I'm trying to remember now how many they had in their history. If anybody knows, it's around 20 that they had in their history. 21, 22, some of that. Uh, In the northern kingdom, they didn't have any good kings. They were all bad, wicked kings. But in the south, in Judah... Uh, they had this kind of up and down roller coaster ride of good kings, bad kings. But what's interesting is Manasseh comes onto the scene now and he's 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years, all right? And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, it tells us, in verse two. He did evil. In fact, Manasseh is gonna be known as one of the most wicked kings that Judah has had. He reigned 55 years. You might look at that and think, Well, why would God permit that for so long? Why wouldn't God just take him out, right? If he's just doing wicked and evil, well, it seems at this stage in life, as they're getting near the end now of their time in Judah, they're going to be taken away into captivity very shortly, all right? And it seems that the Lord is just allowing them to kind of have their way now because it's been a repeated cycle where they just continually done wickedness. Yes, uh, it's been disrupted at times by some revival, as we saw last week with Hezekiah, But it just continued to unravel back to evil and wickedness. And so it's almost like the Lord is just kind of allowing this to happen and just storing up this judgment that's inevitable upon them, all right, where they're going to be taken away. And so what's interesting, though, I think that's a good thing for us to remind ourselves and look at, is that, you know, with these kings that come on the scene and and children, because they're always, you know, the, the children of the previous king more than not, is that there's no guarantees in life as to how our children are going to turn out, all right? And I think that's important for us to look at because we put a lot of weight sometimes on us and a lot of pressure. Now, the Bible is very clear. Listen, train up a child in the way he should go. and When he's old, he won't depart from him. That's not a universal, what am I trying to say? That's not like a universal fact or a promise where it's like, this is gonna happen, It's more so saying, listen, more than not, when you are training a child in the way you should go, he's going to follow in those things. But it's not always the case, all right? So what we've seen, two kings back, we saw Ahaz, wicked king, all right? Doesn't do good, evil. He has Hezekiah. That brings on a great revival, as we saw last week. Hezekiah was a good king. And now Hezekiah has a child, Manasseh, who's a wicked king. In other words... We can't blame our parents for what we are dealing with now because Manasseh had a good, godly father, but he doesn't follow in that way. Hezekiah had an evil father, but he decided, "I'm going to follow the Lord rather than follow my dad." There's no guarantees for what happens, and it's important for us to, to not cast judgment upon parents when we see little hellraisers running around, right, or, or or children that are like, you know, and sometimes our immediate response is like. Oh my goodness, those parents are just not doing a good job. Oh, those parents, they look at, man, they obviously didn't train up their child in the right way. And we can get very judgmental on those kinds of things. But there's no guarantee. We can do everything right, and our children will do everything wrong. Hey, we could do everything wrong, and yet our children, by God's grace, get on track with the Lord. So we have to understand that they have their own free will. And guess what? They're born with a sin nature. That's how they come out guys They come out as sinners I know that personally By seeing all your kids here At <laughs> Riverside Just you know um, So it's apparent But understand that We're not given a, a You know a, a clean slate in a sense We, we are, are raising sinners And trying to direct them to the Lord And they have to make that decision for themselves All right there's no guarantees. We do everything we can, and we leave the rest in the Lord's hands, and we pray for our kids, and we need to be doing that. Pray for our kids. Pray for the kids of this church that they will continue to follow and walk in obedience to the Lord's ways, which, which leads to a blessing, right, and life. And so that's what we desire. And so we see this interesting scene going on. Now, it's interesting because remember at the end of Hezekiah's life, prophet um, Isaiah comes to him and says, Hey, Hezekiah, get your stuff in order. You're, you know, you're going down basically. Get your stuff in order. Your candle is getting snuffed out. And Hezekiah prays to the Lord, intercedes, and says, "Lord, no, don't do this. You know, if you do this, I'll, I'll just continue to to praise you and, and live for you." Well, the Lord grants him fifteen extra years. All right, God's merciful because Hezekiah humbles himself. God's merciful. But it's in those fifteen years now that he does a couple. Tough things. He brings the Babylonian ambassadors down, shows them all the treasures that he has. Not a good idea. It's going to be the Babylonians that are going to eventually come and invade and take them away into captivity. But Hezekiah also in those extra 15 years has Manasseh, all right? Sometimes we need to be careful what we pray for because what we pray for may not always be the Lord's will. And so we need to pray, Lord, what is your will here? What is your desire for me? Because Manasseh is 12 years when he becomes king. So Hezekiah most likely had him three years after that prayer, after the Lord grants him an extra 15 years. So Manasseh does wicked, he does evil. Let's pick it up in verse three, and we're gonna see a little bit about these things that he's doing. If you're not sure what he did, well, we're gonna find out what he did. Verse three, for he rebuilt the high places which... Hezekiah his father had broken down, he raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Verse 6 says also, he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom, He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Verse seven, he even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So Manasseh, he comes on the scene, and he just starts to do wicked. He starts to rebuild all the things that Hezekiah, his father, had torn down. Hezekiah had torn down all the, the pagan altars, the idols, the, the places of sacrifice to foreign gods. Hezekiah had torn them down, so Manasseh comes in. He starts rebuilding all these things. Now, the name Manasseh means caused to forget. And he's quickly causing the nation to forget all about the ways of the Lord, all about the reforms that his father Hezekiah had brought in. Oh, man. May that never be the case for us. May we continually be living in a way where we're reminding people about the blessing of living for the Lord and the joy of following Jesus. May we never cause somebody to forget or neglect those things, but yet that's what Manasseh's very name means, and that's what he's carrying out by his actions here. He's starting to bring up all the things that were once torn down. He's making wooden images in verse three. He's following the Baal. So Baal was the chief Canaanite God that was there in the land. And, and, and God said, when you come in the land, you're supposed to wipe all those things out. But there were many of these things that they left remain. They didn't wipe them out. And now they're starting to follow in those things as they had had that history of doing. This chief God. And, and then Ashtoreth was the female God, the, kind of the, the cohort of Baal. And so she was the goddess, Ashtoreth. And now he's making these wooden images, most likely these Ashtoreth poles in honor of her that were all, you know... Tied to also the practice of uh, of you know fertility or or the 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 worship of you know this fertility goddess and, and so with that became sexual kinds of practices engaged in their pagan worship and it says that he's bringing those idols into the temple verse seven he even it's like it's like the author Ezra is writing here going I, I, and I can't believe this that he even brought this into the temple. He even brought these um, idols that he had made into the house of God, all right? Sad, sad situation that we see being played out through the life of Manasseh. Not only that, but it says in verse six, that he'd even sacrificed his own sons, brought them through the, through the fire, caused them to pass through the fire. And that was the, the worship of the god Molech, another false god. Pagan God that they began to follow after, and this God Moloch, they would have the statue of Moloch with these arms outstretched wide that they would they would place in the fire and heat this God up so that he was just red hot and they would come and place their children, these babies, into the arms of this God, sad, wicked, deplorable thing, and yet you know you wonder, how could God not come and, and bring judgment upon that kind of people, and yet it 's no different than what we see going on today sadly with with abortion how we're willing just to sacrifice children and and to the point where this is just becoming an acceptable thing a a right that we have neglecting again that the fact that that God's given life it's not up to us to take life and and so a sad thing and we need to pray for our nation we need to pray for these kinds of things that are being you know, followed and carried out in our nation because we wonder how far we are from God's judgment coming. Days are short that we live in. So Manasseh is doing all these things. And so, you know, by bringing these idols into the temple now, it's like he's he's causing everybody again to say, listen, we're not gonna worship our God. People would be gathering in the temple to worship God, looking for a bit of reprieve to, to celebrate God. And now they're coming into the temple and there are these idols there now. That Manasseh is causing people to be stumbled in and follow after. Think about the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 verse 7. That says, woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. And that's certainly the case with Manasseh here. Causing people to follow in such depraved ways. And so we read on as we look at verse 8. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed to or for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Here's the thing, guys, and, and we always have to come back to this, is that, man, God's a good and gracious God. And he's a God that wants to pour out his blessing. Never never think of God otherwise. Never think of, a, a, of God as being a God that's looking just to punish and judge and waiting for opportunity to do that. He's waiting for opportunity to bless you. He wants to pour in his goodness and his life into you. And how does that come? It comes by us following the Lord faithfully and according to his word. That's what we read in verse 8. Only if they're careful to do all that I've commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes. This is what God desired. If they would just follow my word, then I would never remove them from the land. I would never do harm upon them. I would bless them. But there are times where he needs to wake us up as we will see here. He's to allow things in our life that are going to shake us and wake us to get back on track with Him. Look at verse eleven. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him, and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Say what? What? Are you kidding me? Think about this. This is incredible. Because here's Manasseh, the most wicked king that Judah has seen, and God has to lead him away with hooks. And that idea is like a nose hook that the Assyrians would come in, lead them away. They're still occupying Babylon right now. And he leads them away to Babylon, but he's taken away by a nose hook where he's under affliction now in Babylon. And it's there that Manasseh is like, Oh uh, yeah, maybe I was uh, going a little bit off from what the Lord wanted. Hmm, maybe this isn't working out for me. And he calls out to the Lord. He humbles himself. And God receives him and forgives him and gives him a fresh start. What? Is that not good? Is that not a good God that we serve? Somebody, are you awake? Do we not serve an awesome and gracious God? Now listen, there are a lot of people I think that we can be praying for that are not walking with the Lord, that we have a heart for, and we're like, Lord, you need to save them. And maybe we've been praying for years for these people. And it's easy to get to that point where we think, you know what, I don't think they'll ever get saved. I don't think they ever can get saved. Look at how far gone they are. Look at the things that they're involved in. Look at what they're doing. I don't think they will ever get right with God. And we can get to that point where we just kind of give up on them and think there's no hope for them. Or maybe we begin to think, nah, God... God doesn't want them. God's not going to receive them. Maybe we can think that about ourselves. Maybe we can have a a past, a history, where we think, you know what, no, you just don't know. And I've heard that from people. You just don't know what I've been involved in. God can't receive me. Guess what? If he can take a guy like Manasseh, who sacrificed his children, who's led a whole nation into rebellion against God. And if God can receive a guy like Manasseh, he can receive you and he can receive me. Nobody is ever too far gone or out of the reach of God's grace. Nobody ever reaches that point. And all God is looking for is for an open door of just repentance and humility. Because look at what we read there. Manasseh, when he was in affliction, He implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly. That's what God desires is for us to walk in humility, for us to humble ourselves and say, yeah, God, I need you. I can't do it on my own. I can't live this life my way. I need to follow you, Lord. And we we need to humble ourselves. In fact, that's what what God had told them all along. Look at 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. He doesn't say, if my people will jump through some hoops, if they'll start to do this and do that, and they can prove themselves for five, ten years, then, no, he says, if they will humble themselves and turn to me, then, then I'll hear from heaven and I will heal them, forgive them, heal their land. That's what God is desired. That's all it takes. Maybe you've, maybe, I don't know everybody here, but maybe some are sitting here and they've just been pumping the brakes. They've been holding back, saying, I, I, God can't receive me. God can't accept me. All he's looking for you to do is to call out to him. And ask for forgiveness. Humble yourself, and repent. And repent is just simply saying, "I'm, I'm, changing my mind about how I'm living and the direction I'm going in, and I'm turning, changing direction. I'm going to follow God's way now." That's all that word means—repentance. And that takes humility to do so. And if a guy like Manasseh can have things turned around, there's hope for anybody out there. That's the God that we serve. He's a God that he wants to bring about a fresh start, a new beginning in every life. That's why when we get saved, we say, we're born again. It's like, I've just got a, a fresh slate now, a clean slate. I'm starting over. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. We're new creations. You know, we saw in Exodus just on Wednesday where, talking about the whole, you know, redemption of Israel out of Egypt, the Passover. And God says, as you're celebrating this Passover, this is gonna become now the first of the year for you. This is gonna become your new year because this is the birth now of a new thing. It's like a new nation that's coming out of Egypt and and following God. This is where things become new, this picture of Passover, which is the redemption of Jesus. Redemption by Jesus for us, new life. That's what it is for us. We in, in abide yesterday. Oh, man, what a great theme. We are talking about restart. Restart. That's what God desires to do. To so just bring refreshment, bring newness. He does that through forgiveness that every single one of us need. And God does it so faithfully and wonderfully and graciously. Call out to the Lord. Accept what he has for you. If you're praying for a loved one, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't ever lose hope. Because sometimes God's gonna take people through some pretty heavy things. That's gonna be the wake up call for them. It took Manasseh getting his nose pierced for the Lord to say, Hey, it's time for you to get your attention here, okay? It's taken away into captivity and afflicted. But it's what God used. Maybe he'll do that with a loved one. We never know. But understand that God can turn things around in an instant. Don't give up praying. Don't lose hope. Well, let's continue on here. So, Manasseh repents. He comes back to Jerusalem. And now he knew that the Lord was God. And with that repentance, repentance is an action word. It's, it's, it's not just being sorrowful. It's repentance Changing your mind, changing direction, there's action involved in that. But now there's also action carried out by Manasseh, which really shows, again, this genuine repentance of Manasseh. Look at verse 14. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate. And it enclosed Ophel, and he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the, altars, the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So Manasseh comes back to the land and he starts saying, Okay, we're gonna build things up again, we're gonna refortify, we're gonna re-strengthen our city, we're gonna bring the offerings into the house of the Lord that we need to do, thank offerings, peace offerings. And so Manasseh again just begins to, to lead people back on track with the Lord. Alright? Does a great work. There's there's an evidence now of a change of heart, change of direction. All right, newness of life now. Nevertheless, it says though in verse 17 that people still sacrificed on the high places, but they did so as to the Lord. Now, that's a bit of a compromise there, all right? We have to recognize something that just because the Lord forgives us, and he does, and he's gracious, there's still consequences for sin. It's important that we recognize that. Sin is not something to be messed around with, played with, fooled around with. Because there's still things that are happening in the land that people are not walking in full devotion to the Lord. The high places were the, the old pagan places of worship that God said were to be taken down. When you come into that land that I'm giving you, take those things down. Don't worship there. They're not of me. I'm, I'm to be worshipped in the temple. But they were still going there. They were still left there, and people were worshiping the Lord there. Is a compromise. All right? We're thankful they're worshiping the Lord, but they should not have been doing it where they were. They should have been doing it in a prescribed place that God had shown them. And so there's consequences from some of the sin and in fact with manasseh even look at what we read in in first or sorry second kings chapter 21 verse 11 and 12 it says this because manasseh king of judah has done these abominations he's acted more wickedly than all the amorites who were before him and has also made judah sin with his idols therefore thus says the lord god of israel behold i'm bringing such calamity upon jerusalem and judah that whoever hears of it both his ears will tingle the reason God says, I'm going to take away the nation of Judah and bring them into captivity in Babylon is because of the sins that have been perpetrated by guys like Manasseh. There's consequences for sin. And we can easily get into that mode where we think, well, it doesn't really matter what I do because God's going to forgive me. God's gracious, Pastor Brent told me last Sunday, and God's going to forgive and he's gracious. And so I can just basically do what I want and just seek forgiveness. and everything's he's going to be fine. And we can sometimes get caught up in that kind of thinking. And yet, we have to understand that sin has one objective. To kill, to destroy, to bring death. That's its goal. That's the goal of the enemy, to steal, kill, and destroy. Sin has one purpose. It's to completely obliterate you. Sin is not something to mess around with, play around with, or fool around with because it brings consequences with it. Yes, God forgives, but there's sometimes the collateral damage that comes from sin that we still have to deal with in this new life that we have with Christ that we're still reaping what we sowed. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't pay off to mess around with sin. Don't, don't fall back on the excuse that, oh, well, God will forgive me, everything will be fine. Yes, he will. But there's still a lot of pain that sin brings with it. And the the whole people of Judah, though there's reforms taking place, they're still going to deal with the consequences of their sin that has been committed. Well, look at verse 18. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. Also his prayer and how God received his entreaty and all his sin and trespass and the sites where he built high places and set up wooden images and carved images before he was humbled. Indeed, they are written among the sayings of Hosea. So Manasseh rested with his fathers and they buried him in his own house. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. So Manasseh, Lived his life, he dies. And, and again, I think one takeaway we can have from the life of Manasseh, again, it doesn't so much matter how you begin, it matters how you finish. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for us to finish well. Paul, Paul says as much, where he's like, I've fought the good fight, I have finished my race. I've gone all out, man. I haven't, haven't let up, I haven't given up, I've just continued on. Eyes on the prize. It's easy to get in that place where we think, you know what, look at all that I've done. Look at, the, look at the things I've done 20, 30 years ago and just kind of kick back and get into cruise control. It's important that we continue on, fighting the good fight, finishing our race. And you might look back on your past and go, man, there's a lot of stuff that I've done that I'm not proud about. But understand, when we come to repentance and forgiveness, those things are erased. Don't let the things of your past hold you back, and don't let the things of your past make you comfortable to get into cruise control today. Matters how you finish. Don't worry about what's gone on in the past. Because that's forgiven. It's erased. It doesn't need to be held against you if you're in Christ today. So don't worry about what the past says. Let's focus on today In the future. And finishing well. And Manasseh is a great example of that. Praise the Lord. He he dies. He's buried in in peace now. And then Ammon his son comes on the scene. Look at verse 21. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord. As his father Manasseh had done. For Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images. Which his father Manasseh had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord. As his father Manasseh had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more. Then his servants conspired against him and killed him in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who conspired against King Ammon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. So Ammon comes on the scene now and he decides to follow the ways of his father before he repented, all right? And he continues on in evil now to the point where he only reigns two years and 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 then his own servants came in and were like, we got to... We've got to end this guy here. We've got to take him out because he's not helping us at all. And so they, they take him out. And then others come along to take out the conspirators now, and they are gone. So it's a whole big drama, soap opera kind of affair going on right now. But the good news is he produces a child, Josiah. That's what we read about in chapter 34. And now we again see a great turnaround. Look at chapter 34, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father, David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now, this is a miracle going on right here. It says he was eight years old and he did what was right. Hey, those of you that have had eight-year-olds, that's a miracle right there, isn't it? What eight-year-old does right? None. None. Born sinners, we already talked about that, right? This is amazing. Here, God just has his hand upon him. He's not following the ways of his father, Ammon. He's following the Lord at eight years old. He does what is right. And check out verse three. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. And in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars, which were above them, he cut down. And the wooden images, the carved images... And the molded images he broke in pieces and made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Verse 5. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and all around with axes. So basically from the south to the north, every part in between, he's just gone through the land and he's just got a a great purging going on. Verse 7. Verse 7 when he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned then to Jerusalem. So an amazing work that Josiah begins to carry out now across the entire land. He begins to just kind of bring down all the, the pagan altars that again, you know, I mean, have been brought back into play. He's starting to purge the whole land. He's... He's just removing the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, all the molded images, anything of idolatry, anything of pagan practice, he's like tearing it down. And I love what we see there because in verse 7, it says, he um, he broke down the altars, and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images into powder. I like that. That's a good image for us there. All these things, he took, he didn't just take it now and say, all right, let's, let's just, cover that up let's just put that away somewhere we don't want to see that anymore no he deals with it once and for all he cuts them down and he just grinds them to powder in other words these things are never going to be able to resurface again and that's a great image for us and a great example for us because maybe there's things in your life that the Lord has begun to deal with and said you know what it's time to let that go it's time to not just put that away But see that brought to death. Because sometimes we can think, we get convicted over something, oh yeah, Lord, I really shouldn't be looking at that. I really shouldn't be involved with that. I really shouldn't be doing that. So we're just like, well, all right, I'm just going to put that in the closet then. I'm just going to put that down in the crawl space. We're just going to deal with that. But guess what? All it takes is just opening that door now. Saying, oh, gee, it's been a long time since I've seen you. How you been? Well, let's just... Maybe see how things are going with you and bring that back out again. If we're not dealing with these things once and for all, like Josiah bringing it to powder, if we're not crushing these things, we're leaving a, a, a room, we're leaving a foothold for the enemy to continue to tempt us with those things and to see those things brought back to the surface. How we need to take those things in our life that are not of the Lord and say, I need to see those things brought to death, destroyed, destroyed, So that they can't resurface any longer. And Josiah is doing just that. And he's not just doing that with sinful things. He's doing that with sinful people. Because verse 6. Sorry, verse 5. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars. And cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. Now pagan priests would want to be buried next to their altars or places of worship and sacrifice. Well now he's taking the bones and he's burning them. And just basically desecrating these altars before he destroys them. But it also tells us in 2 Kings that he was literally... Taking pagan priests, priests that were disobeying the, the Lord and and, and sacrificing them—that's a heavy thing. But you know what? This goes exactly in line with a, an incredible prophecy three hundred years earlier, when Jeroboam had divided the nation and he started to lead this revolt. Uh, in the northern kingdom, or, or established the northern kingdom, and so Jeroboam says, "I'm going to set up our own places of worship, so that people don't want to go back to Jerusalem and worship at the temple, and be drawn back to the southern kingdom. I'm going to keep them in the north. I'm going to build our own places of worship here." But they were false; they were pagan; they were they were idolatrous practices. And so a prophet comes to Jeroboam and says, "This like it's like in." or sorry, First Kings chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, it says, And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. Three 100 years before Josiah comes on the scene, this prophet speaks to Jeroboam and says, hey, guess what? There's going to be a king born to you. His name's going to be Josiah. He'll be a child. And he's going to do this work. That's incredible. Josiah is fulfilling God's word here. And this, this excites me because God's word always comes to fruition. Maybe you struggled with that in the past. Maybe you've wondered... Is that promise really for me? Is that really true? Is that really something I can depend on? Understand, God's word always comes to fruition. You can count on it. Listen, it might be a year. It might be 10 years. It might be 300 years. But God will be sure that what he speaks, what he says, is going to come to pass. Always will. Always has. It will always be that way. And so here's Josiah now fulfilling this incredible word. And he's taking care of business in the land. He's not letting anything remain that's going to perhaps lead people astray and draw people away from the Lord. So he's taking care of business. Well, as he's taking care of business, notice what happens. There's an exciting thing going on here in this chapter, verse eight. It says this. In the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azalea, uh Mesia, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. When they came to Hilkiah the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites who kept the doors had gathered from the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim from all the remnant of Israel, from all Judah and Benjamin, and which they had brought back to Jerusalem. Verse ten. Then they put it in the hand of the foreman. "...who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they gave it to the workmen who worked in the house of the Lord, to repair and restore the house. They gave it to the craftsmen and builders to buy hewn stone and timber for beams, and to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed." Verse 12, "...and the men did the work faithfully. Their overseers were Jahath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Merari and Zechariah, and Meshulam and the sons of the Kohathites, to to supervise." Others of the Levites, all of whom were skillful, were instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and were overseers of all who did work in any kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes, officers, and gatekeepers. So here money has been gathered. And we saw that with a previous king when the temple was in shambles. They called out for people to come and just to bring freely Willfully and they set up a box and people just came and brought money We saw that recently where there were just heaps of blessings being brought in To provide for the work going on in the temple and for the workers Well here in a similar way money is brought to Hilkiah the priest To supply the funds for the workers There were people that were hired out, builders, craftsmen It's to supply their their needs, their materials To supply for their labor Everybody's being provided for. The work is getting done and the temple is being restored now. Josiah is sure to take care of that. It's a great work going on. And I love what we read there at the end of verse 13. And some of the Levites were scribes, officers, or sorry, the end of verse 12. Others of the Levites, all of whom are skillful with instruments and music, were over the burden bearers and were overseers of all who did work in any kind of service. So here's all the musicians now. They're the... They're the project manager, they're the overseers here, right? They're the contractor that's going that, that's taking care of all the work that's going on. I mean, how often do you go by a construction site and you see a guy hanging out in the corner with a little harp? You know, hey you, get that two by four over to here, okay? All right. He starts playing on the harp again. You're saying that doesn't happen. Musicians, amen. Did I get an amen here? All right. Musicians are taking the charge now. They're overseering all the guys with the hard hats and the vests and They're out there, you know, hanging out, and the musicians are guiding the way. That's so, it just, that's. I just find that cool. I just wanted to make mention of that. Okay, but notice here, this is where it gets good. Verse 14. Now, when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law, the Lord, given by Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, "'I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord.' And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. So Shaphan carried the book to the king.' bringing the king word, saying, all that was committed to your servants they are doing. And they have gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Thus it happened, when the king heard the words of the law, that he tore his clothes. Let me just stop right there. So a, a, a great work has gone on. Actually, let me just continue a couple of verses here. It says this, then the king in verse 20, the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahakim, the, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, servant of the king, saying, go inquire the Lord for me. This is Josiah's instruction to these men. Go inquire the Lord for me. And for those who are left in Israel and Judah, concerning the words of the book that is found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So as they're doing the work in the temple, they're restoring it all, there's Hilkiah, moving things around, getting things cleaned up, suddenly finds the book of the law. Been misplaced, hasn't been used. People haven't been consulting God's word for a long time. And now the book of the law is found. Now we're not sure exactly, there's a lot of opinions as to what exactly that book comprised, Uh, Some believe it was just the book of Deuteronomy. Some believe it was the whole Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible Genesis to Deuteronomy. And it could be either or, it doesn't matter. But what they're hearing is they're hearing God's word that they hadn't seen now in a long time. And and it's perhaps that that as um, Shaphan is reading this to Josiah, he's reading perhaps from Deuteronomy 28 that detailed the blessings that come from obeying the law and the cursings that will be upon the people for disobeying God's law. And so it's perhaps that's what he's hearing. Because what happens is Josiah hears this word and he just tears his clothes. That's a sign, a symbol of just grief and mourning and despair. And so Josiah realizes the magnitude of the words that he's hearing and the fact that they have not been walking according to this word. And basically says, the wrath of the Lord in verse 21 is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. He sees the history that's gone on, the sin that's taken place in the land. And Josiah is realizing we set ourselves up for some real problems here. From, uh, set ourselves up for receiving the wrath of God. Because we've walked away from his word, by and large. And so Josiah is concerned about that. He's cut to the heart over this word. I wonder how how often do we allow the word just to cut deep to our heart? Do we allow the word to speak to us as though, you know, just like Josiah is receiving here today? See, Josiah didn't just look at at that book as some outdated, washed up book. He saw this as a book to not only be read, but a book to be kept. Because it's in obedience to it that we find life and blessing. When we come across scriptures that maybe point out sin or challenge us in a way, do we just kind of pass it over and say, ah, you know what, that doesn't really pertain to me. That's not really my thing. Do we just kind of pass it over? Or do we allow the word of God to cut us to the core like it did with Josiah? Do we allow it to do a change in us? Because that's what God desires. Not just that we're getting into the word of God, but that we're getting the word of God into us where it's washing us, it's correcting, it's teaching. That's what what the scriptures are for. It's it's profitable for, for correcting, for rebuking, for teaching, for training in righteousness. Don't just go through God's word as some kind of religious duty. Allow the word of God to go through you and to bring an effectual change and, and challenge and correct you and shape you and make us more like Jesus. That's what we desire. Throughout history, every lasting revival that's taken place has been linked to a rediscovery of the word of God. The same thing will happen in our lives personally. That is, if we get into the word, revival can't help but just break out. It's been said that a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to a person who isn't. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to a person who isn't. If you want your life to be revived, refurbished, renewed, as we see taking place in the nation, you want to see that happen in your own life personally, then get into God's word. And let God's word get into you and begin to shape you and challenge you and correct you and train you up in God's ways. Well, Josiah hears this word and he sends men out to go and consult, you know. He's going to send them to, they're going to go to hold of the prophetess where he's just seeking counsel as to how do we apply this? What do we need to do? And so notice what we read in verse 22. So Hilkiah and those the king had appointed went to Hilda the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokap, the son of Hasra, keep her the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her to that effect. Then she answered them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and burnt incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and not be quenched. So, Huldah speaks and says, tell your king, here's the word of the Lord. Yeah, calamity is coming upon the nation because of the sin of the fathers. Again, Josiah is turning things around, but there's consequences for sin, as we've talked about. And they're going to reap the consequences of that. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. man reaps what he sows. And the nation is sowed into idolatry and rebellion and disobedience. And they're going to reap that. Though there's people coming on the scene that are changing. Well, this is the word that's coming. But, verse 26. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I shall bring you on this place and its inhabitants. So they brought back word to the king. So because Josiah humbled himself over these words, because he's walked in obedience to the Lord, God says, you will not see this calamity. You will not see this fall upon the nation here. You'll be brought to the grave in peace. You're going to die in peace, basically. You're not going to see any of this. So God assures Josiah that there's blessing again that comes in obedience to his word. All right? And so Josiah could have sat back now and been like, oh man, that's good. I'm not going to see any of this. I don't have to deal with this that's right i can just put my feet up and relax now i can just coast along because everything's going to be hunky-dory but he doesn't do that as we're going to see next week as we pick it up right here in verse 29 because josiah continues to lead this revival and bring people alongside the word of god to make sure that they are walking in obedience to it so that they are continuing to ensure that blessing that comes upon them well in closes, a couple application points we can leave with ourselves to walk away with here. First of all, may we continue to walk in humility like Manasseh and like Josiah. Don't wait for trouble to come like Manasseh, but rather avoid trouble by being humble. Here's what Warren Rearsby says. Each of these three kings had to learn something about humility. It was almost too late when Manasseh humbled himself. Ammon never did submit to the Lord And Josiah truly humbled himself before the Lord and was used to bring a spiritual awakening to the land. True humility is a healthy thing, wrote A.W. Tozer. The humble man accepts the truth about himself. Humility is a healthy thing. Secondly, remember that you are never too far away from God's grace reaching you. Don't give up praying for those that seem like they can never be saved. And thirdly, have a heart for the word of God and allow the word of God to change your heart. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for our time together today that we can worship you, that we can fellowship with one another and fellowship with you and just sit at your feet now and receive from your word. Continue to plant this word in our hearts. May we be those that live it out, not just hear it, but be doers of it. Thank you for the encouragement today. Thank you for the challenge we've received today. And may you continue just to work that into our hearts and again strengthen us to live it out and to live in a way that just honors you, God. So I pray these things in your awesome name, Jesus. Amen.